Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and... I power through it because I am a champ. Yes, you are, and that's why you get a sticker. Is it a gold star? What if it's a sticker of a cookie? Oh, that would work, and especially if it's one of those scratch and sniff things. Oh, those are awesome. Welcome, everybody, to part one of the latest episode of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? (laughs) I've been watching the IT crowd. It's like the best show ever. Love it. I haven't seen it. It's so good. I just powered through the four seasons and was like, oh, my God, this is the best. I just want to, like, rub it all over my face. (laughs) Noel, you need to watch it. It's so good. It's so good. I'm too busy watching Power Rangers. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That, that. That, that goes for me, too. Okay. So <laughs> so joining us once again back, it's been almost two years since our Halloween episode, is filmmaker Lori Bowen. Hello, everybody. So what have you been up to in the last two years? Um, I've made a couple of short films. One that came out in 2011, 2012, was Justice with Sage Hall and Travis Garner. And Brink Stevens came in and did a voiceover for me. And then last year, I made Stella Buio with Linnea Quigley as the title character in another zombie film. It was amazing to work with her. And that's on the circuit now. Then in February of this year, I made a short film co-directing and co-writing with Shannon Lark called I Am Monster. That'll be hitting the circuit soon. Yeah, I really look forward to seeing that one. I don't normally say things about my films, but oh my God, this is a really good flick. It's really good. I'm trying to, I honestly can't remember if I've seen Just Us yet or not. I might, I might have, but I know I saw Stella Boyo and I very much enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I got to look up Just Us again because I usually keep track of your films, but <laughs> it's like I'm drawing a blank on it. Yeah, that one's not up on YouTube. It's up on Vimeo. So maybe that could be why. Okay. I'll send you the link later. Okay. Evie, you want to tell us what film we're covering today? Yeah, actually I do, because I like this movie. Um, (laughs) We're covering A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, which was two years after I was born. Two years after I was born, too. I feel like it's a gift to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was written and directed by Wes Craven, and this episode is coming on the tail of our Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes episode, so Evie and I have already kind of stated where we stand on the uneven career of Wes Craven, but... (laughs) Let's just say yay for no rape in this movie! Yeah. (laughs) Like, Yes! Well, then we get to the remake. I'm so yeah. happy. Shh. Just, I'm so happy right now. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it for me. Okay. <laughs> so, Lori, what is your opinion on the, on the career and films of Wes Craven? Well, like any director and even Masters of Horror, it is a little uneven. For every Nightmare on Elm Street, there's Deadly Friend, which yeah. I'm not that big a fan of. But on the whole, you know, he's a very thoughtful director and a very thoughtful writer, and I appreciate that more than anything. So I'd rather take Deadly Friend over, I don't know, yet another Saw. (laughs) Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. His films always do have something to think about. Exactly. And a lot of them are underappreciated, like Serpent in the Rainbow, or even People Under the Stairs. You know, very underappreciated. People Under the Stairs is actually one of my favorites. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So he's he's uneven, but good. That's on Netflix. I might have to check that out now. Oh, yeah, do. It's 
crazy. <laughs> Which I love how many times you tell me to watch something and I'm like, no. And then Lori's like, I really like this movie. And I'm like, God, I should watch it. <laughs> it's that second opinion thing because you don't want to take the first opinion. I still get credit for recommending Harper's Island to you. Yeah, that you can take credit for because that was so good. <laughs> oh. So good. Okay, anyways, let's go ahead and move into the film itself. And here I'll edit in a little synopsis that I'm going to record later. <laughs> Even you always laugh. I've done, I've done that for like eight episodes and you still always laugh at it. <laughs> it's still funny. It's never not funny. <laughs> fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. I suddenly <laughs> feel like we're going to be like Bill O'Reilly. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> Teenager Tina has started having nightmares of a burned man in a fedora and a red and green sweater with a bladed glove on his hand chasing her through a massive boiler room. Telling her friends, she finds that Nancy has been having similar dreams, which is quickly brushed off by their respective boyfriends Rod and Glenn. They all get together at Tina's house that night, only for Tina to be violently killed. Nancy's father, a police lieutenant, quickly pins the crime on Rod, who has a juvenile record and a switchblade, but a bloodied and panicked Rod tells Nancy that some invisible force killed Tina while she was asleep. As Nancy continues having dreams about the burned man, she witnesses Rod's death, which is staged to look like a suicide. Assembling clues and confronting her increasingly alcoholic and despondent mother, Nancy learns the story of Fred Krueger, a janitor at the local school responsible for the sadistic murders of several children in the neighborhood. A fudged warrant set him free on a technicality, so the local parents formed a mob, hunting him down and burning him alive. And now he's back for revenge, attacking their children in their dreams. Nancy's father doesn't believe her, her mother locks the girl in her home, and even Glenn has been having a hard time swallowing Nancy's claims. When he's the next to die, Nancy uses a technique to physically pull Freddy out of her dream and leads him through her booby-trapped home before realizing that all she needs to do to make him go away is refuse to give him any fear. The next day, Nancy heads off for school with her friends, all suddenly alive again, only for the car to lock them in as we see its hood as the red and green pattern of Freddy's sweater. Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes. Very yes. Yes, with... A exclamation point and a smiley face emoticon. I like Heather Langenkamp in this. I love her Nancy because she's a proactive heroine and it's sort of, she didn't really become a scream queen, which is a shame because her character is much more proactive than like Jamie Lee Curtis's character, for instance, in Halloween because Nancy doesn't need to be saved. She ends up saving herself in the end. So we'll discuss that. But she has her shit together so much so that she comes up with a plan. Someone else doesn't have to do it for her. She doesn't need Donald Pleasance to show up at the end to push Michael Myers out a window or something. And you're already angry at the remake. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't say anything. I, we'll get to it. We'll get to it and we'll get to it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Okay. Laurie, do you recommend the movie? I highly recommend it. Not only is it a brilliant example of an independent film, even though it was made for like almost $2 million, it's also a study in simplicity. Now, yes, his makeup took six hours. They got it down to three, I think. And, you know, they had a spinning room and all this other stuff. But you have this one strong heroine going up against this one strong villain. And it's a simple story of good versus evil. And I think a lot of writers can learn a lot from this film. Filmmakers can learn a lot from this film. And it has an amazing heroine in Nancy. It has... That perfect balance. You know, you can't really have a good villain without a strong opposite. 
And the reason why Freddy is so memorable is because he had someone strong opposite him. And a lot of films these days miss that entirely. So yes, I absolutely highly recommend it. No. I also <laughs> recommend the movie, but with trepidation, because I do have a lot of problems with it, in that I like a lot of the concepts. There are some fantastic moments. I love Nancy. Heather Langenkamp is great, and Nancy is a wonderful character. Freddy, I like more in concept than I do execution, and that kind of stands for a lot of the movie, in that I like this movie a lot more in concept than in execution. And to be fair, there were a lot of budgetary and production schedule problems that meant they couldn't pull everything off as well as they need to, but there's a lot that they don't quite pull off. And by the last few minutes of the movie, it just completely loses me. It's a film that I enjoy and I appreciate, but I ultimately find an unsatisfying experience. So, why don't we move into open discussion? Very well. Why don't we go ahead and just <laughs> talk about Freddy, in that I've never been a fan of the carnival barker Freddy, and here there are moments where he is kind of the more malicious figure looming in shadows, but then there's also moments where he literally jumps out of a bush waving his arms and going, wooga, wooga, wooga. <laughs> But I find that those moments are so sparse compared to the ones where he's sort of like, I'm going to lurk and be menacing and whatnot. You know, I have this problem with fans of a lot of the classic films that they think Freddy is a lot funnier than he is because of the way he was portrayed in the sequels. But in the very first film, you know, he's very menacing and very serious. And I feel that anything that is unintentionally funny is because of us as opposed to what was done in the film. Well, and then there were also like the bit where he's jumping out of the bushes. There were a few bits in this movie that weren't directed by Craven. Yeah. He actually had Sean Cunningham, the guy who did Friday the 13th, come in Yay! because it ran behind schedule. And I know a lot of the bits where people are running down the street chased by Freddy, those were the Cunningham moments. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'll cut some slack there, but I also just... There's no character to Freddy in this film. There are in other films. And in some way, it works that he's more a presence than he is a character. But I don't know. I just don't attach to him. I'm n I've never been scared of him in this movie. Hmm. With the exception of the bit where he's like rising out of the bed. I was scared of him because the finger and eyes as a kid. Because we did not watch horror movies. Yeah, I was scared of him in other movies. I just didn't, in this no, one. No, I was specifically scared of him in this one. We never okay. seen any of the sequels when I was a kid. But I had seen a clip of him from the movie. And it was terrifying because he was in shadow and he had the finger. I'm pretty sure it was the this is God scene. Which, I mean, if you're going to scare the shit out of a little kid, good job. That was the one to go with. I didn't need to connect to him on any level because I didn't want to connect to him on any level. I needed him to be the boogeyman, and that's kind of what he was. I needed to connect to Nancy, which I did. Right. Freddy because is a dream. He's ephemeral. So I don't think, you know, he's supposed to permanently attach himself. He is a representation of everything that we fear, and he exploits that. And I get that. It's just I just never found him scary. You don't have to, so. Part of it might be that I, when I was a kid in the 80s, Freddy was already kind of the goofy pop culture icon he became. And I didn't see any of the films until I was already well into my teens. Mm -hmm. So I kind of already had that image of him through pop culture. So I was never really able to approach this film kind of with fresh eyes. He did get really jokey in the later films. When I was a kid, he was already in like the Fat Boys video. <laughs> oh, or he yeah. had that album that came out and he had the TV series and all, all that stuff. Okay. Because I saw yeah. the movies when I was eight. I saw the first one when I was eight, and I was utterly entranced because I had identified with Nancy very much. 
you know, obviously I wasn't the same age, but I'd had night terrors all through my childhood and could identify with her. Whereas if you didn't see him until you were in your teenager years, like you said, you already have that exposure to him as a pop culture figure as opposed to a nightmare figure. I think that more than anything is the damage that this franchise has done to the series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, not so much that the sequels are crappy because some of them are pretty good. Yeah. But because of this whole pop culture proliferation of him as a comical, but as he, he became the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, I, I've seen like some of the later films and it gets so like Yucksville and <laughs> it, it gets hard to watch. So I'm like, I'm, I'm watching a horror movie, right? Yeah. What I do like about this movie is how little he actually says. Mm-hmm. And when he does talk, it's these great lines like, I'm your God, or I'm your boyfriend now. Mm-hmm. I do like those moments. I just, part of it is also, I've never really been a fan of Robert England as an actor. I like Robert England. Even on V, where he was the lovable alien. <laughs> I love Robert England as a guy. I just don't like him as an actor. I've seen him in that like weird version of Phantom of the Opera that he was in that was actually really, I like that version because it didn't have a guy who had a terrible singing voice singing in it for no reason other than he was hot. (laughs) And it didn't have, you know, a whole bunch of naked ladies that were painted gold because God forbid, you know, Joel Schumacher was going to get like, he couldn't have his nippled bat suit. So he was going to get as many naked people and nipples and dimes as he could. (laughs) Well, Joel Schumacher is one of the directors up for Nightmare on Elm Street 6, so just be aware. Yeah, that movie's never going to happen, so good luck with that. No, no, it was before Freddy's Dead. It was before Rachel Talalay came on board. Wow. Yeah. He would have... He's terrible. That was back... I mean, Peter Jackson was also one of the directors up for it before she came in. Yeah, yeah. but Peter Jackson would have made sense. He made, like, Meet the Feebles. He made Frighteners. Mm -hmm. That actually makes sense. This was right before Schumacher kind of came back into being... His career kind of hit a slump, and then he did The Client, and then that kind of shot him back up again. Which is not a movie that holds up. No, I know, but it was a hit. It it was big at the time. Yeah, so we almost did have a Schumacher Freddy. (laughs) He, he would have had, like, really pronounced nipples underneath his shirt or something. I don't Freddy with a codpiece. Yeah. Don't give him ideas. <laughs> Speaking of which, watch the people under the stairs. Can I just do that instead of talking about the remake? <laughs> well, why don't we go ahead and talk about Nancy? I definitely think she is the strongest part of the film and just is one of the strongest horror film heroines around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Love her. I especially love how fierce she is in trying to convince people that this is something that's really going on, even when they just keep treating her like she's going insane. And it's just eventually like, fuck it, no one's going to help me. I got to take this guy out myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Wes Craven had written the script because his daughter came up to him while he was cutting Swamp Thing. And she had noticed that Adrian Barbeau tripped and fell like all the other horror heroines had up to that point. And she said to him, Dad, women are not that klutzy. So he's like, hey, that's right. And that's why he wrote Nancy and made her this strong, independent, girl next door, wonderful character for girls and women to look up to. (laughs) It's fabulous. Yeah. And I think Heather Langenkamp, she just brings this great presence and this great energy to it. She is fabulous in the film. She brings Nancy this gravitas that she knows what she's talking about. She's incredibly intelligent and you take her seriously. Whereas, you know, in the more modern versions of some of these films, they cast all these intensely Hollywood beautiful people and you think, okay, really? Yeah. (laughs) It's not real. And Heather is very real. And despite some brief nudity, it's never about her tits. 
Exactly. Yeah. Like when she's naked and getting pulled into the bathtub into like this pool of water. That was actually a fear I had as a kid that a shark would come and eat me in my bathtub because I did not understand how bathtubs work, apparently. <laughs> that was a great scene. That's the reason why I never, I still never take bubble baths because I don't want to be pulled under the water. <laughs> I love that she had that great seashell inflatable pillow. Behind. I had one I, of those. <laughs> I want one of those. I, I do. I want one of those. And the hand just, like, comes up from between her legs, too. It's just so freaky. Yeah, it's Uh. sexual without being overt. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's a teenager, and she's going through all these changes and the hormones and, you know, fighting back against your parents and authority and all of these swirling emotions. And it doesn't go for the overt like they started to in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, Wes Craven is someone who has pushed there in the past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know. But I'm glad for this film, film, yeah. Yeah, it's not necessary. Yeah. This film does get a lot of criticism for the quote-unquote home alone climax where she sets up all the booby traps, but I really like it. But they set that up, too, because Mm -hmm. she has that book. Mm -hmm. My only problem is that she tells her dad, come here in 20 minutes and I'll get him. And then in the course of that 20 minutes, she sets all of this up and then goes to sleep. Maybe could have done that a little earlier. There are some reasons why some things don't entirely make logical sense, but I'll get into that in a minute. No, you're not a girl. A girl could do that in under 20 (laughs) minutes and get to sleep. Filing out the light bulb, opening up every single shotgun shell. Yeah. Heck yeah. We're girls. We know how to multitask. Yeah. I've been on the phone with my friend on the internet watching TV. And And then leave yourself five minutes to be chased by Freddy around a boiler room. Yeah. Yeah. That's plenty of time. That's more than plenty of time. (laughs) Especially when you haven't, you know, slept at all. Yeah, Yeah, if you're exhausted, first of all, the adrenaline will hit that you will do everything as fast as you need to humanly possible, and then you will fall asleep in, like, the drop of a hat. Again, I'm not totally criticizing you. It was just a little thing I noticed, because (laughs) I do even like the sledgehammer, you know? That sledgehammer was awesome. (laughs) It's a really nice sequence, and I kind of like how it turns around on her. She locks him in the basement, sets him on fire, but then he still gets up and kills the mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should just take a moment to talk about the mom. I know everyone gives the actress a lot of shit, but her character's supposed to be a drunk. Having grown up with a drunk, that's kind of how drunks act. Well, it's not until halfway through the movie that she starts diving into the bottle. Well, that you see. I genuinely find the actress's performance confusing, and there were a lot of moments where I... I mean, there's just a, a great moment where she walks into the hall and lights up a cigarette lighter that I just... The way she did it, I thought was hilarious. Well, I mean, back then smoking was okay. And I just thought it was funny that she's at like the doctor's office or whatever. And she just lights up a cigarette because it's like, no way could you do that now. With Dr. Roger Rabbit. Oh, also the best part being when Nancy gets in the car and she tells the husband that she's going to take her to like a sleep clinic or whatever. And they drive away. Neither one's wearing seatbelts. I'm like, whole different time. (laughs) I mean, I do like the relationship of the parents. Especially the dad keeps trying to blame the mom for everything. Mm -hmm. I do like the kind of escalating paranoia of the mother in terms of trying to protect her daughter from something external that isn't there, but then locking her in to fight something internal that is there. Mm-hmm. I like that on paper. I just don't like Ronnie Blakely's performance. Or I love it. I love her performance, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> she strikes me as someone who didn't necessarily listen to Mr. Craven's directions. 
maybe she was directing herself. I wouldn't be surprised if this is just what the actress is like. <laughs> well, either that or she wasn't given a whole lot of direction and because the character isn't really essential to the story. I would disagree with that. She is just there to basically, you need her there to be like, he's dead because I killed him. That, right, that, but that, if you don't direct her properly, then it brings the whole thing down. You have to treat every mm-hmm. character that has lines as important or else only- it takes down the whole project. I do think the mother is very important because not only is she a foil for Nancy, but she keeps making things harder for Nancy. And she's also the one who reveals to us the backstory. I mean, I love that line of Freddy can't get to you. Mommy killed him. Yeah, that's so creepy. <laughs> Wes Craven boiled this down. You know, he cut off the fat. So everything that is said in every character is, is necessary. They provide a vital service to the story. It's just in terms of how she interpreted his direction or how she decided to direct herself that brought her character out. Yeah, it's just, it's an odd performance. Mm -hmm. And I do love the comically large bottles of vodka. (laughs) Makes her hands look smaller. (laughs) (laughs) Not gonna lie, those big bottles of vodka exist. I know they do. I know they do. But I love how every time we see her drinking, it's from that massive bottle of vodka. One thing I like about the backstory is, you know, his first two films, Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes, were all about basically civilized people having to become monsters in order to slay monsters that were threatening their family. And this is almost a thematic sequel to that in terms of now these are the consequences they have to face when the monster comes back Mm -hmm. to punish them for straying that line. It's an interesting idea of, you know, the reason why all these kids are being killed is because of something their parents did. But the Mm -hmm. only reason their parents did that was because the monster did what he did. Right. It feeds on itself. Yeah. Sins of the father. Yeah. Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just the constant escalation of violence. Mm -hmm. In particular, because they can't do anything about it. And the parents don't believe the kids. So the kids are left to handle what their parents wrought on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no backup. You can't trust them. You can only trust your peers. And even that only goes so far. Exactly. I mean, that's what I liked about Johnny Depp's character of Glenn was he's kind of (laughs) useless. Yeah. Nancy always keeps going to him for assistance. And first of all, he doesn't believe her, despite these little cryptic moments that suggest he's been having nightmares, too. Mm -hmm. They have that for everyone, actually. Yeah, I know. But but with him, I love is even up to the end, he keeps denying it. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone except for Tina and Nancy. All the guys are like, yeah, that doesn't happen. That's, that's, no, that, no. Yeah, Whereas the girls are like, uh, I'll walk it up, I'll walk it up. <laughs> and Rod yeah. kind of gets axed before he can really confront it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With Glenn, there's multiple times where she goes to him for help and he just completely fails to, to, I mean, like there's that great bit where she goes to sleep and is like, wake me up. And he ends up falling asleep and she ends up, you know, almost suffering for it. And then there's that great bit where, you know, it's again, you know, meet me at midnight, but he ends up falling asleep again. He doesn't take the sleep seriously as a threat, despite the moments where he says he's having problems with nightmares. Mm -hmm. And how did he know so much about the Balinese way of dreaming? Because Wes needed some character to say that. (laughs) And Glenn was the only one around by that point. Yeah, Because sometimes teenagers read weird stuff. (laughs) I've read weird stuff that just sticks in my head and I'll randomly like blurt it out. People are like, how do you know that? And I'm just like, you're just weird. Yeah, in the pre-Wikipedia days. Yeah. I mean, what I also like is that Glenn isn't an easy stereotype. I mean, he's kind of the lunk-headed jock, but by casting someone like Johnny Depp, who's kind of more small and slightly built, 
it kind of goes against the typical stereotype. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about these characters is none of them really fall into easy stereotypes. Exactly. Like, you know, Rod is, you know, the punk, the wild one, but he's also a very dedicated person. And I love that bit where Tina's getting killed on the ceiling and Rod is trying to save her. And he's trying to save her. And there's nothing he can do but watch. Mm-hmm. I like the characters. I mean, what I like how the story introduces us to the story through Tina. Mm-hmm. This is something that the remake builds up on more, but I kind of like that sense of a faux protagonist. And then Tina leads us to Nancy, who's our real protagonist. Yep. Though I do like that we do get to know them as a whole. Yeah. We get to know the four characters, even like... I like that we get that one night at the house, so we get to yeah. see all their dynamics. Yeah. Exactly. Which some movies nowadays, you're supposed to feel bad that they died because they're in this movie and they are friends with this person, but you never actually are given a reason yeah. to like them or care about them. Mm-hmm. I especially love that scene around the sound effects tape. That was awesome. <laughs> That's just so sweet. Yeah, it's perfect. And they're not even helping. They're just like, we're just going to sit here and laugh because it's too ridiculous. And then they start pushing buttons that make it worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're helping. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> Why don't we get to some of the kills? There are some spectacular moments in this film that still hold up, like Tina being dragged across the ceiling. Or That was brutal for me as a kid, and that still yeah. looks brutal to be dragged around like that. Especially just as she's sliding up the wall yeah. and like hits the corners, dragged out. And then just the moment where she drops and hits the bed and the blood splashes everywhere. Oh, yeah. that, that, that's just... Uh... Yeah, it's practical effects. You can see the textural difference between Amanda Weiss being thrown around the room because they're turning the actual room and Katie Cassidy being CGI'd around the room. It instills that reality and makes it that much more fearsome and dangerous that, you know, she's actually going up the wall. Mm-hmm. When she's like falling around the room and you hear her thud, it sounds like a real thud. I'm just like, ow, that sounds like it hurt. Mm-hmm. Stunt people do not get paid enough. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then the other effect that they used the rotating room for was Glenn sucked into the bed in the geyser of blood. Mm-hmm. Aww. Absolutely an epic effect. Yeah. I've seen the footage where they have Mr. Depp come back up out of the bed and mm-hmm. then fall over. I'm kind of glad they didn't include that, even though it is chilling to watch. Just because I think that would have been just a bit too much. I like the implications of when the police are there, that people have gone into the room and found the remains. Yeah. What does the coroner have to say about this? You'll have to ask him. He's puking in the bathroom. <laughs> he's been yeah. puking in the john since he saw it. And then like, I even like the bit where the one officer is putting the bucket under the leak in the ceiling. Yeah. And the dad just looks at it and just goes, oh, God. Yeah. The it's, worst part being that when the parents walk in, they actually have to see this geyser of blood. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I like about the bit there with the parents and like the whole crime scene is that Craven is playing this both for horror and for laughs at the same time. Which is odd, but it works. I like it because that kind of makes that scene even better. That releases the tension. Yeah. It lets people kind of relax a little bit. But it also lets you take in just the full implications of what happened, which makes it even more horrific. Exactly. So you're almost laughing in a horrified way. I didn't like it. Now I'm going to be afraid that my bed's going to eat me. (laughs) Deathbed, the bed that eats people. Yes. I mean, as to some effects that didn't work for me quite as well, were like Rod being hanged by the bed sheet. But then again, that's more just a technical limitation. And the whole Freddy with the arms across the street. See, I will fight you on the arm. Which I thought was such a bad shot that I'm surprised it even made it into the film. 
I will fight you on the arms because I think of European folklore and just the storybooks that I had as a kid and I still have and like the fucked up arms that they had in those storybooks and the way that they were drawn. In concept, yes, but in terms of execution, I will absolutely disagree with you. Well, in 84, you know, that's the best they could do. (laughs) I know, but there's a point where you have to just accept that it's not working and move on. I like it. Yeah. It also just never did anything for me like the moment where he just stops and cuts off his fingers or where he slashes his own chest open. It's like, okay, I get it. The chest slash was gross. I'll give you the fingers, but the chest slash was gross with that weird pus and the maggots. Mm -hmm. Do not want. (laughs) It just didn't do anything for me. I I like Tina. I love Tina in the body bag, especially being dragged down the hall. But then you have that weird hall pass gal who's just a horrible actress. That was Heather's stunt double. But to me, that was the middle of a tense scene and that completely broke the tension for me. Yeah, but Nancy's in a dream and what makes sense in a dream doesn't make sense in real life. So, But that still doesn't make it effective filmmaking. I still like it. Where's your hall pass? (laughs) It's still funny. I like it, okay? And then there's that bit where she sees Tina again later standing in the puddle of snakes, which, again, that's so obviously not Tina. And then there's that weird bit where Freddy is wearing Tina's face. Mm-hmm. There's like so many moments that I appreciate what they're trying to do, but because of their limitations, they just aren't pulling it off. That centipede coming out of her mouth, that genuinely still skeeps me That out. was fine. That yeah. was fine. I just didn't like everything else around it. That was actually a dummy mouth that it came out of, too. Yep. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, no way would anyone be like, here, put a centipede in your mouth. You go fuck yourself, sir. And then that gets <laughs> into the climax for me of... I love the concept of you turn your back on Freddy and you take his energy away. I just don't in any way like the way they executed it. The whole just turning into the blue stars and falling through. Mm -hmm. I I don't even know how you could have done that better, but that wasn't it. See, I always looked at it as she is still in the dream. So things that you see in dreams do not make sense in real life, but they make sense in dreams. So him turning into like a crazy blue star man makes sense in a dream. In real life, no way would that make sense. Well, he's a child-murdering pedophiliac who comes back in their dreams after their parents have burned him alive in his boiler room. So, I mean, you know, the whole conceit works toward making that ending work. It's not so much the logic of the concept, it's just the actual execution of it. Oh, technically, he's not a pedophiliac until you get into the later movies. It's not really said at all in this one. Yeah, it's not denied either. It's not said, yeah, it's very subtle. And I think it's also part of the chemistry between Mr. England and Heather. You know, they had, I wouldn't even call it a sexual chemistry. They just had this kind of intense chemistry that... He's just really fucking creepy. (laughs) A predatory chemistry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it may not have been an overt thing written into the script, but it's definitely there. I also don't like the last scene. Because they've pretty much thrown any sense of this story making any sense out the window for a shock. She's still in the dream. I know, but that doesn't fit the rest of the movie. I mean, because then was all her heroism just in the dream, too? Yeah, Yeah. I guess, like, I always took it as, like, she is this really strong person. But depending on my mood, I can take it as the moment that she falls asleep when the crucifix falls off the wall. Everything after that is a dream. Well, I mean, that's what the story was originally intended to be, that everything Mm -hmm. is a dream, including the fact that there's actually a killer killing people, that it's all just a, it's literally a nightmare on Elm Street. That's what the original Mm -hmm. concept for the film was. And it was supposed to end with her waking up and her friends are all alive and everything, and everything's okay. The entire thing was a dream. Yeah, I've seen that original ending that he had. Well, but even that wasn't how he originally scripted it. Mm -hmm. It was literally supposed to be she wakes up that day, you know, at Tina's house. 
and everything is just as it was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the whole weird thing about the mom having weird lines and (laughs) I don't know. The mom just confuses me. But uh, I think by adding that shock ending, you either the story doesn't make any sense or it's extremely nihilistic and saying Nancy never had a chance and she's gone now. Well, it's not that she never had a chance. I always saw it as she's still in the dream. But then it's just a not a satisfying ending because we haven't resolved anything. Well, it's like real life. Rarely are things resolved nicely and neatly. You couldn't interpret it as an extension of she still has a lot of fighting to do through the rest of her life, however long it may be considering she's in the Freddy car. But the implication of the Freddy car is that Freddy now is one. Not that the fight is still continuing. Because she's fully trapped in there now. But But she's she's Nancy and she'll get out. Yeah, she's not dead. (laughs) I mean, they did make part three. Yeah, but in part three, she had beat him. And she hadn't been having the problems anymore until... She was on Hypnosil. That's right. So she could have still been dreaming about him. I guess it just, for me, it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. I mean, it it was Mr. Bob Shea saying, well, we want to leave this open for sequels, so... (laughs) And to be fair, the original ending where she wakes up and everything's fine, Mm -hmm. that would have been dissatisfying too, just because nobody wants to be invested in a movie only to find out it's all a dream. Yeah. I like my interpretation where she's not done fighting yet. Yeah, she's beat Mm -hmm. him at a point, but she has to keep going. I know, but that's an interpretation. That's not what the film is giving me. Which is fine. If she had just, you know, if she had her victory and then the final shot is just still at the house with the crime scene and she's with her dad, that would have been a satisfying ending for me because she beat the monster. They still didn't film it that well in terms of that particular thing, but it would have at least had an ending. Though technically you had to have known that she was still in the dream when the mom dies. Because you get crazy light up disco bed. Yes and no, because Freddy has been able to manipulate reality. He does the whole pushing out of the ceiling over her bed even before she's asleep. Yeah, but I'm watching that as she's that's already part of the dream. Mm -hmm. So if I'm watching that as that's already part of her dream because the crucifix already fell off. See, but then I find that belittling Nancy's actions because they were ultimately hopeless. No, they weren't. She's still alive in the dream. I don't get that interpretation from the ending where she goes off in the Freddy car and he has her. Yeah, but she's Nancy, so she'll get loose. See, and this is what I don't like about the ending, is there's no clear ending. (laughs) I mean, people have, especially with latching onto the sequels, people have various interpretations of the ending, but I think it's a problem that the film never really had an ending, and so they just kind of ended up with one. Which I'm fine with. I mean, I like the ending. I think they cut together like three or four endings, though. I've watched some of the different endings that they had on the DVD. There was one where it's like Freddy in the car, and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? That was literally my reaction to that. Yeah, I think that of all the available options that they could come up with, this was the best. Mm -hmm. Because it does leave it open for interpretation. It lets the audience decide for themselves and have discussions like we're having 32 years after the movie was made. Well, but there's a difference between ambiguous and open to interpretation and the filmmakers just saying, we can't figure it out, just (laughs) here, fuck it. It feels lazy to me. Yeah, but again, that's you assuming that that's what they said. (laughs) No, that is what they said, because in the commentaries, he's like, we had four different endings because we couldn't figure out what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And they ultimately just ended up with that one because it it had a shock and and the audience responded to it. Yeah, but once something goes out to the public, despite what filmmakers say, it is to the public and they can interpret it as they wish. Mm -hmm. So if I want to say that Home Alone is So I'm free to interpret it as I wish. Yeah. Yeah. Is dissatisfaction because of how (laughs) it happened. Yes, but then you can't bring into that, oh, but this is what the filmmaker said because, well, then... Yes, because it does support my point. 
Yeah, but then you're, it's not really an interpretation. You're just going off by what they said. You're not really interpreting anything. You're just going, I'm dissatisfied by this ending, and this supports my dissatisfaction. No, I'm dissatisfied by the ending because it feels like what it is, and what they said supports what it is. <laughs> That's your opinion, though. Okay, I accept that. You don't need to keep arguing it with me. <laughs> yes, I do! Shut up. <laughs> so, anyways, other things about this film... I really like John Saxon as the dad. Oh, yeah. I just like John Saxon, period. Did he eyeliner or was that just me? John Saxon always kind of looks like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's eyeliner or if he just has dark lashes. Oh, okay. I think he's always had dark lashes. I remember watching oh. an older film of his. Yeah. His eyes kind of popped and were dark like that. Yeah, he even looked like that back in the 60s. There was a great Mario Bava film he was in called The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Mm-hmm. I like the music in the movie. Oh, the music's fantastic. It's a little synth-heavy, but it it works. Well, that was what was in back then, too. And what they could afford. Yeah. When Nancy's <laughs> asleep in the sleep study, and you don't see her interacting in what's happening, but you just see her interacting in the bed itself, and you hear the little sound effects, I'm like, that's always going to be creepy for me. <laughs> you just need the sound effects. I'm like, uh, good stop. <laughs> yeah, the score is amazing. The sound design is fantastic. I love the squeal. I love the squeal the blades make on metal. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Jacques Haitken's cinematography is phenomenal. And I only just caught this, that the storyboards for this movie were done by Bill Croyer, the director of Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Really? Yeah. That, that, okay. I, I got nothing for you there, man. I yeah. Got, <laughs> I got nothing. Anything else we want to mention about the film before we move on? It's Rob, right? The lunkhead boyfriend? Rod, yeah. Rod. Rod. Rob. <laughs> SMRT. I like when the movie is blatantly, like, it's hinting at the fact that they're all having problems sleeping and they're all dreaming about Freddy. Mm -hmm. Who is Fred in this movie, actually? And we're all calling him Freddy because he becomes Freddy. No, he was said as Freddy a few times. Really? Yeah, she did. One, two, Freddy's coming for you was in here. Yeah, well, in the rhyme he is. No, but but she says Freddy a few times, too. Oh, Yeah, she does. Like, at the end, she's like, hey, Freddy, can't you catch me? But yeah, there are some times where she does say Fred. The point being that they are all dreaming about him and there's like hints dropped that they're all dreaming about him. And Rod, when he gets the little garden thing, I, I clearly garden, so I obviously know what they are. <laughs> yeah, the, the little... implication is that he, he was inspired for that by the dream. And I love that because people don't do that now. They just like, you'll get the moment where someone just like stands there and does their exposition but you don't get the little hints and the buildup beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I was like, oh my God, this is so good. I love you foreshadowing. <laughs> I just, I like the foreshadowing, okay? I'm a whore for foreshadowing. I dig it, I dig it. I also love his line, up yours with a whirling lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good line. He says the sweetest things. <laughs> I really like that scene where Nancy's walking down the street and she sees the cop behind her. Mm-hmm. And then the cop's gone. And then Rod just suddenly yanks her into the bushes, still covered in blood. And is just trying to tell her something. And then the dad is there with a gun because he used her as bait. I love that Rod is actually barefoot, too. And he has no yeah. shirt on. I'm just like, oh. Okay. He just grabs his jeans and his jacket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, can you imagine just like running around barefoot? I'm like, balls, that would hurt. Yeah. You know, there was a good amount of time between when he left and when he found Nancy. You would think maybe, I don't know, I would try to go home. But I'm guessing they Especially if you're a teenager, you want your mommy, man. <laughs> you know? I'm guessing the police were probably at his house. That's kind of like off-screen things, yeah. Yeah. The off-screen adventures of Rod Lane. 
I also love Tina's mom. The one time that you meet her and I'm just like, that's not her dad. Like the second that guy comes into the room, yeah. Like, yeah. the way that it's played is that he never looks at Tina. Because I'm like a concerned parent would actually look at Tina and then they let her tell you, yeah, no, that's not her dad. And I was just like, <gasps> called it. Well, and then there's also that implication of, you know, when Rod says we're going to take your mom's bed and that mm-hmm. the mother won't notice the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, my favorite thing is it's, this is film interpretation you know everybody interprets things differently going back to the hall pass i like that she resembles nancy and the implication of her in that sweater you know that has nothing to do with the film i'm sure mr craven didn't plan that at all but to me it's just interesting that the woman that looks a bit like nancy is in this sweater i'm wondering if the reason they put her hair in the ponytails was to make that less overt Mm, it could be. But yeah, that that woman is Nancy's double. I mean, she's literally the proxy for Nancy. Mm-hmm. And she's in the sweater. And, you know, what that sweater has come to symbolize, I just I find that an interesting little detail that they probably thought about because he is, again, a very thoughtful filmmaker, but maybe not in the same way as we're interpreting it all these years mm-hmm. later. Yeah. I also like Lynn Shea as the teacher just because it's Lynn Shea. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Who I think has probably been in, what, half the Elm Street films in, in little parts? Yeah, both she and her brother, I think, have been in every film. I'm glad that she's actually gone off and had a decent acting career. Yeah, absolutely. I think she's great. From just little cameos in her brother's movies to actually having a career. Mm-hmm. So, good for her. Yeah. Anything else we want to mention about the film? I like the boiler room. Yeah, yeah the boiler room's gorgeous. Found a good location there. I think it's been shut down since, like, it was condemned for asbestos while they were Everything shooting. is nowadays. <laughs> I just love the little moment where Nancy's in her basement and then there's suddenly a door there to the boiler room. Yeah, Mm. nice transition. That boiler room's just fucking creepy as fuck. (laughs) Uh, Like, that's the reason people don't go to boiler rooms. That movie. (laughs) I don't know. I I went to, we were shooting I Am Monster at Linda Vista and some of my crew brought back some photos of the uh, boiler room in the basement there. It's creepy. I wish I could have shot there. (laughs) Well, that's because you're clearly far braver than I am, who would literally just cry, pee your pants, and then run away. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm not in boiler rooms. That's true. Any final thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street? I love Uh, it. Yeah. I mean, though I have my problems with it, I can't deny that it is a significant horror film. I have a particular attachment to it because of Nancy and, you know, just seeing at the right time where when I was a kid, I never really felt connected to any of the princess stories or any of the Disney Mm -hmm. movies. And they didn't have anything with strong female characters. You know, I love Neverending Story, but I can't identify with Bastion or Atreyu because of physical differences, you know. And and I can't connect to them because I can't say, look at her, she's like me. Whereas I could do that with Nancy. And it hit me right at the right time. I was having night terrors and I needed someone to look up to. Because when you're a kid, you you don't understand that your parents are practically superheroes, you know? Mm -hmm. So I actually have A Nightmare on Elm Street to thank for helping me get rid of my nightmares. So I have that particular attachment to the character. And I wish Nancy had gotten more credit. And I love that Heather has made I Am Nancy to sort of shine a light on why we need strong heroes and heroines in our mythologies and the stories that we're telling now. More women, I think, need to see Nancy because she's just like you and me. She could be living right across the street. She's just like us. Mm -hmm. And she was able to defeat this or not, depending on how you interpret the ending, this very powerful, evil presence. And I love that. 
And what I also like about Nancy is the horror films, especially the slasher versions, have become known for the final girl. Mm -hmm. But the majority of them are still very reactive and very pretty much just constantly victims up till the very end. Whereas Nancy is extremely proactive. She repeatedly brings the fight straight to Freddy. Mm -hmm. Instead of just waiting for him to come after her, she directly goes to him. She brings the fight to him and brings the battle to him. Not once, but twice. There's that great bit where she goes and finds the prison. I like that she not only stands her ground, but she actually charges forward. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely something that I would like to see more often. Yes, absolutely. Instead of like most horror films are she gets chased and chased and chased and chased and chased and then does something at the very end. And then the big strong man comes and helps her and saves her. Or she suddenly stabs him or knocks him off a cliff or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. This is specifically to do with Heather Langenkamp is that Kristen Stewart gets it now where I don't like Kristen Stewart's acting style and people are like, she's really natural. And I'm like, she seems really (laughs) uncomfortable. Yeah. Heather Langenkamp was really natural. Like that's when people say someone acts really natural, I'm like, no, that's what Heather Langenkamp was doing. What Kristen Stewart looks really awkward. Heather Langenkamp felt very natural and very much like a teenage girl. I think that's the big strength of she made Nancy a person. Yeah. I mean, not only was the character very well written, but Heather Langenkamp, her presence just really made her so relatable and identifiable. And Mm -hmm. she's a person. That's She's not a character. She's a person. And that's just absolutely one of the strengths of the film. I mean, we've kind of been going back and forth calling the character either Heather or Nancy because it it is such a part of of her. Yeah. Yeah. It's because she made the character so real as opposed to you get a lot of there are there's a lot of horror movie characters where I'm like, I am very well aware that I'm watching character. Mm hmm. See, and despite my problems with the film, I definitely still think it's worth watching, if only for that, Mm -hmm. because she is such a fantastic character, and it is a film that just, it has such great concepts at play. It is a very intelligent film. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the problems I have with it, most of them can be chalked up to the fact that they really did have a tight production schedule and an extremely low budget. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you never know, you know, I think every film deserves to be watched, good, bad, and different. Because you never know what that's going to spark for, I'm I'm of course approaching this as a filmmaker, but you never know what that's going to spark for you as something you want to talk about in your film. Oh yeah. You know, like you could take the concepts that you're talking about for Elm Street or whatever and think, yeah, this hasn't been explored very much. I would like to do this and, you know, be able to explore it for yourself. So yeah, I agree. I think every film should be seen. Oh yeah, I mean, back when I was trying my hand at being a screenwriter, we're talking about a decade back. I actually, one of the things that inspired me most was watching shitty movies. Mm-hmm. I would literally watch MST3K movies, and I would literally use it as a writing exercise of how could you take this, how could you take the elements of what are present in this film and ma- find a way to make them work mm-hmm. without just completely throwing it out and starting over again? How can you take this broken thing and fix it? Even bad movies can be worth watching for the inspiration especially among creative types of how to make something work Mm -hmm. because you identify what doesn't. Exactly. Really bad movies are also really great for figuring out how symbolism works because their symbolism is so blatant. <laughs> that, no, that's actually how I learned to figure out, oh, this means this, this means this. one of it was a screenwriting class, but also just watching shitty movies and being like, oh, I see. That's mm-hmm. what this is supposed to symbolize. And then I'd watch far more complex movies and be like, oh, OK, I think what they're trying to do here with this symbolism is this, this and this. Right. Because I'm a nerd. <laughs> Despite my problems with it, it's not a bad movie. 
Right. It's a flawed movie, but it's still a pretty good movie and it's worth watching. And it's a film that, you know, not everyone's connected with, but a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. And for a good reason. Yes. So I think that'll bring our Nightmare on Elm Street to a close. I think before we fully wrap up the episode, we want to just take a few minutes to kind of walk through the sequels. Okay. Uh, sure. Of course, the first one was Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which is... Homoeroticism, yay! <laughs> which, no joke, unironically, is my favorite in the series. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's deliciously homoerotic. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually like... I mean, it's heavy-handed, but I actually like that angle because how often do you find a film that explores things through that level, that, that, that thematic approach? Yeah, I wasn't joking. I genuinely think that's cool. Yeah. I also just find Freddy in that film, with the exception of the pool party scene, which is <laughs> horrible. I like Freddy in that film because that's where he's at his most brooding and seething. That's the one where he's more hidden in shadows and is more a looming, mm. even more so than in the first film. He's kind of this looming presence of malicious energy. And I like that instead of just going after victims, he's literally finding this person that he's trying to turn into his own avatar mm -hmm. because nobody knows him anymore. Nobody has any memory of him anymore for him to jump into their heads. So he needs to go out and find new victims. Right. Also, I think he wants to date his avatar. <laughs> and yeah, I made a guild reference. I rule. <laughs> I'm done. I'm going home. Drop the mic. <laughs> I mean, I get that, you know, it's a film that not a lot of people like because it is a very different film than the first one. It takes Freddy in a very different direction. It has that weird over-the-top homoeroticism, and it has that fucking pool party scene. But I really like the movie. It just, it's the only one that really pulls me in and gets me invested in the characters and the story. And I just, I like it. Okay. Am I the only one? You're not the only one. I've heard of other people, but they're like the unicorn. I'm also one of the only people who likes Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. <laughs> I personally don't like it as a film. I think they play a little too fast and too free with the rules that Mr. Craven set up. But what I do like about it are the special effects and Christopher Young's score is yes. phenomenal. And I love the acting. I love Mark Patton. I love Kim Myers. I like the cast. But, you know, when you start exploding parakeets, I just think I like that... The <laughs> It just got a little too silly for me. And I'll agree with that. You know, and I find it really hard to believe, as they said in Never Sleep Again, that they had no idea of all of the homoerotic pieces that were going into the film. When you have Bob Shea in all that leather, you have to know. But I think they were also playing it for a joke. That's where I'm, I'm a little bit eh, yeah. about the movie. I think the director is the only one who is refusing to admit that because the writer and the lead star are both openly gay and fully yeah. admit that, yeah, that's what the film is about. Yeah. It's just Jack Shoulder, the director, and I think that's because he knows he went too, a little too far and is just kind of like, oh, crap. I think he's just trying to backpedal away from it. That could be. But, yeah. I think that you have, as you said, the openly gay writer and star, but you have all these heterosexual dudes that, you know, put the game probe in the closet. <laughs> you know, a lot of it was played for laughs and that kind of lessens the message. And that's, I also think, is they're worried about coming off as homophobic. Yeah. So it's ridiculous to believe yeah, that they didn't know. <laughs> this film also raises an issue that I have with some elements of the franchise, including the first one. But, you know, again, it's debatable as to how much is real, how much is in the dream, mm -hmm. is Freddy's ability to use his powers in the real world. Yeah. I like that he's taking over the body of a kid and turning this kid into a serial killer. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you can suddenly cause towels to fly off a shelf and whip <laughs> a guy in the ass or everything that happens at the pool party. Oh, I wish I could. 
I would so demean men. Like, it was going out of style. Like, ugh. Freddy in the real world should rob him of his powers, mm-hmm. which would also be why he would be worried about people pulling him into the real world. Yeah. He's never worried about anyone pulling him into the real world because he just does all the same stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that the franchise has always had a problem with for me. I think in the first one, they played around with it enough as far as, like, this could really still be a dream. This, you know. Yeah. It's only when they get into the hole with the mom in the bed. But again, it's debatable. Is this a dream or is this real? Mm-hmm. Anyways, and then there was Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which I know a lot of people dream like. Warriors. For a lot of people, that's the favorite. It's not my favorite. And my biggest problem with it is not so much that Nancy dies at the end, but they went ahead and made part four. Because then Nancy's death had no meaning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's poetic, it's dramatic, it's rich and vibrant and everything. Her death had meaning. And then you have part four. Well, it's also part three is another one of those ones where they didn't quite know what they want to do at the end. Because the original script by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner, the entire third act of that had been like thrown away. And then they... Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell wrote a completely new one. And I hate the whole bits of John Saxon fighting the stop motion skeleton and the whole... (laughs) I like the effects, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And then there's the whole, let's just turn Freddy into Dracula with the whole holy water and the crucifix and the hollowed ground. (laughs) That all loses Yeah, But I do like that they brought Nancy back. And my only problem is there's, there's horrible dialogue in that movie and some really bad acting. Yeah. But it's still a really good story, and it's the first one to have fantastic effects work. The effects were pretty phenomenal. And I think at that point, they'd finally settled on a look for Freddy. Like, I'm nerdy enough that I can tend to look at a picture of Freddy and know which film it's from. Yeah. But at that point, they started having continuity between all the, you know, they set up a certain look, you know, a certain wound on his cheek, a certain look for his ear, that they were able to carry through Freddy's dead. What I especially like is 3, 4, and 5 kind of do form that kind of series. And part 6 was supposed to, but they kind of build on that. Mm-hmm. I like the Dream Trilogy. I should probably bring us into Elm Street 4. My only problem with Elm Street 4 is that there's no plot. It's literally, he kills a bunch of people, she gains all those people's powers, she fights Freddy. That's the entire story of Part 4. Yeah. But I love the acting, I love the characters, I love the soundtrack. I think Rennie Harlan's direction is great. Mm -hmm. I love Screaming Mad George's makeup effects. Oh, so beautiful. (laughs) I mean, why they didn't have Screaming Mad George stick with the rest of the series after this, I don't know why. Maybe he had better things to do. Most of his stuff went straight to video, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was better pay for other stuff? Yeah, he was busy making the Giver movies. It's just, it's kind of a very, there's no story to the movie, but I love the movie just because visually, I think it is probably the best of the original series. Yeah. Mostly because of Rennie Harlan's direction and the makeup effects. It's it's very beautifully shot. Yeah, absolutely. But it's kind of just, there's no real weight to it, though. And the character of Alice just is not Nancy. Yeah, they made her into a superhero. Yeah. Conceptually, I think that's pretty cool. But as part of the series, it kind of removed the fear factor for me. The whole thing about Freddy is you're supposed to be able to take your power away from him through your mind. Mm -hmm. So you're not giving him the fear that he uses to fight you. And instead, you know, she grabs nunchucks and spiked bracelets and goes and does a kung fu battle against him. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. but why? This applies to Nancy in part three, too. But if you're in the dream and you know you're in the dream, why on earth do you think that defeating him in the dream has worked? 
See, and that's the thing is Dream Warriors should have been the story of gaining control over your dreams, at least of a few characters. I mean, there's even certain characters who should be having strengths because of their disorders. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. like the one girl who burns herself, she shouldn't have the same fear of pain in her dreams as other people, and that should give her strength. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there's other things. I have this whole mental rewrite of what Dream Warriors could be in my head, and I won't get into <laughs> it now, but different people should be able to interact with their dreams in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that Freddy just ultimately has power over everyone in the dream world. Right. And then we should get into Dream Child, which I think has a great story. It actually finally makes Alice a good character, Mm -hmm. but it's just so sloppily made. Yeah. The makeup effects are like beautifully designed and horribly executed. I can see that, yeah. You know, and like there's even the bit where, uh, what's the name of the painter where it's all the various stairways going up and down and left and right? I see Escher. Yeah, I love the idea of having that be in a dream world. But Labyrinth totally kicked this movie's ass in terms of execution. Plus Labyrinth had Bowie. That's true. Yep. Imagine an alternate universe where David Bowie was Freddy Krueger. I'll be in my bunk. The hot Freddy (laughs) Krueger. I would be in my bunk. He would have a single with each film. (laughs) Uh, Anyone? uh, We're done here. We're done. I like the story of Dream Child. I love the idea of attacking a pregnant mother through the dreams of her baby. Mm -hmm. And this is almost like the first appearance of Micronaps. Of how, like, suddenly reality will just suddenly blink out and you're stuck in the dream world even when you're awake. Yep. But it's kind of messy. And Alice, Alice was a character with a lot of potential and she never quite got to live up to that potential. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's the actress's fault. She just never yeah. was really given the material. Yeah, I mean, she's a good, strong character and she's the only one who has survived Freddy, other than Yvonne. But I don't think she was written to her full potential either. If Patricia Arquette had stuck with the series after part three and they had used her character instead of creating Alice as a substitute, maybe the Dream Trilogy would have had a little more cohesion. Maybe. I don't know. Patricia Arquette was on to better things by then. Yeah. So anyways, Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare. You know, I do have a soft spot for it just because, um, I don't know, I I, I like parts of it. I do like Rachel Talalay. Oh, I like her sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think it it left the film kind of tonally discordant. She really was influenced by Twin Peaks, and you can see it all through the film. Especially the Roseanne Barr, Tom Arnold scene. <laughs> Two were never in Twin Peaks, so. Yeah. This should have been, feeling. though. That would have been great. Yeah. I just, by that point, I don't really see where they could have gone with Freddy because of the joke that they made him. Yeah. Well, there was actually, there was a very good early draft that ultimately wasn't used where it's the same kind of setup of it's the last kid escapes from the town before it gets completely swallowed by Freddy. And he is actually the child from the dream child. Okay. The film actually has the return of the dream warriors. Several of the dream warriors have managed to transcend death into the dream world in the same way Freddy has, and they keep getting in his way. It actually becomes this ultimate race to awaken Nancy again so that Nancy in the dream world will become the ultimate protector. Hmm. It's a really you good script. You have me at Nancy. Let's just put that. <laughs> it's a really good yeah. script, and I don't entirely know why they threw out the grand majority of it, but they didn't go with it, and the one they went with is just kind of weird. It exists. It's not a movie that I hate because, again, I Rachel Talalay's kind of sense of humor clicks with me, mm. but it just feels like the wrong film for it. It works much better with Tank Girl. Yeah, and even Ghost in the Machine I like, too. Yeah. It's a shame Talalay, her film career never really took off, but I'm, she still does a lot of good work in TV. Yeah. If she had been a guy, she would have had way more work, but, you know. <laughs> 
So then there's Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Woo! Yes. Love this movie. Which is another film that I, it doesn't entirely hold together for me, but I love it just based on the sheer boldness of its concepts. I'm like, just put it in my eyeballs. I need it. And there's so many sequences in it that are really good and really strong. It's a film that's just kind of scattered, but again, it's not so much a story as it is kind of an experiment on Craven's part, and it kind of works. See, I've heard a lot of people bitch about this movie, and I'm just like, God, what is it like to be wrong all the time about that movie? Because it must just be (laughs) terrible. I don't agree that they're wrong. It is a film that it's not a film that's going to work for everyone. It's a film that I keep going back to, and sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. But it's definitely one of Wes Craven's boldest and most inventive movies. It's my personal favorite of all the sequels. First of all, it brings back Nancy. At, at the end, granted. Or we get to the point where it actually fully blurs the lines between Nancy and uh, Heather. Yeah. I think it's actually one of Heather's best performances. Mm-hmm. And I've seen quite a few of her films. This is definitely one of her best performances. I love how well he's able to play on all of our expectations and play with us as fans and really go super meta with it. Yeah, I love it. Well, and it addresses the thing that we were talking about where Freddy got so jokey that everyone Mm -hmm. was like, ah, Freddy. I'm like, it addresses all of that. Yeah, it does. My only major problem with the film is the last 10 minutes. Really? Yeah. I mean, because Freddy goes into the comical route with the whole wagon his forked tongue and everything. And it ends on a good note. It's, It's just for the few minutes when she's fighting in there. And I also don't like the idea that instead of this actually being Freddy, who's escaping the imagination of the film world. Because he's literally become the dream of reality. Mm-hmm. It's instead a new character, a demon, who is taking the form of Freddy. Right. That's the part that I don't like. But it's it's a small part. I can easily overlook it. I think a lot of us in horror worry to a certain extent about what we're bringing into the world. Not that people can't understand that this is fake. Although I do question if people understand that movies are fake sometimes. Yeah. But I wrote a short story once where this character was killed on set. And in a rush to try and finish the film, the director rewrote this whole section and just kind of put some words on paper and ended up truly resurrecting this character. And sometimes I think we have it in the back of our heads that what energies are we putting into the world? Are people going to understand that this incredibly violent film is actually a statement against violence or this revenge film is meant to say, look, revenge is not the answer. People, it's like we said earlier, once something gets out into the world, it's up to the world to interpret. Yeah. I think that that's kind of the demon Freddy is sort of the embodiment of that idea. Well... I don't like it because it's something that already pre-exists in this world. Instead of Freddy coming into this world, it's something that's already pre-existing that latches onto Freddy. It's kind of this Lovecraftian elder god thing. (laughs) But I mean, again, it's such a small part of the film. It's so underexplored that I can just gloss over it. But what I love about the film is that so many of the things that you just mentioned is that it's a film that it doesn't set out to answer questions. It sets out to raise them. Mm -hmm. It sets out to start a discussion. That's what I like about it is that sometimes my problem with Wes Craven in his more supernatural films is when he does try to give answers and he does try to give explanations. They don't always work. In this one, it's he doesn't even try. It's more just these are questions. These are Mm -hmm. things that we need to talk about. These are things we need to consider. Yep. And then just by simply raising them, he has done his job. And that's what I like about the film. Agreed. I want to put it in my eyeballs right now. Can we (laughs) we just like record the rest of this later? I want to go rewatch. And then this was followed by (laughs) Freddy vs. Jason. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, Which I think we can just pretty much just not even say anything about. Yeah. Well, there are parts of it that I kind of like. It was definitely written by fans. You know, friends of Freddy, friends of Jason. And I think they tried their best in certain respects to appeal to both sides. You know, they brought up Hypnosil and they tried to do fan service to both sides. I do like that this is the first time that we clearly state that the reason why Freddy is able to attack people is because they fear him. Mm -hmm. That that fear literally is his access way. And his problem is that by killing off all these kids, nobody knows about him anymore. Yeah. And he needs to make people know about him again, because only through knowing about him is he able to gain that doorway. I like that. Mm-hmm. I do. And I think the film is pretty decently directed. Ronnie Yu's visual style is pretty interesting to add to a Freddy and Jason film. Mm-hmm. And it definitely sets it apart from both franchises. I just didn't like any of the characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the entire climax is literally just a beatdown between the two. Yeah. I actually like his Jason. I think his Jason is one of my favorite Jasons of all. Which isn't saying much given the Jason series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite Jason, again, this yeah. is like being the skinniest kid at Fat Camp. You're not really winning any awards here. You know, Freddy vs. Jason, it went through like 28 different scripts, mm-hmm. a dozen of which I've read, and they never had a great script. Yeah. They were never able to find the perfect way to make it work. And this script is, it's neither better nor worse than any of the other scripts that were out there. So it's kind of like, this is the film I expected to get with what they gave me. Mm -hmm. So I can't Mm -hmm. entirely complain about it. But it's also not one that I ever really feel compelled to watch again. It is better than Warriors of Virtue, though. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah. That going for you. Not as good as Bride of Chucky. Love that movie. I actually did like Ronnie Yu even before he came over to America. I I liked his Bride with the White Hair movies. Oh, those are brilliant. So, but anyways, that kind of brought Freddy to an end for a while. I mean, there's all the novels and comics and TV series, but we won't get into that. So I think that's going to finally bring our part one to a close. So thank you for joining us for part one, Laurie. Oh, thank you for having me. Good night, Evie. I sort of forgot what I was talking about. (laughs) That's just me. To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.blogspot.com. The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool. Yeah, but that's because he made the gay Freddy, and he won't cop to saying that, so. <laughs> Just come out If, already, if he yeah. hadn't done that, he would have way more work. Just come out. Admit what your film is. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it out of the closet. One of the problems I almost have is they, hang on here, I, I, I'm still in the tail end of a cold, and I had, my nose is running. Sexy. <laughs> that so is so post. super sexy. <laughs> I'm now Googling images of John Sack just to see if he always looks like he has. Because it's just the slightly, the, the little bit underneath the lower lid that looks like he has guy liner. And well, no, it was he always the 80s. Looks like that. It was the 80s. No, he, was. He, well, either that or he always is wearing guy liner in his projects.